Section 22 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4 by James Boswell, Section 22. He said to Sir William Scott, The age is running mad after innovation all the business of the world is to be done in a new way men are to be hanged in a new way tyburn itself is not safe from the fury of innovation Footnote. the last execution at tyburn was on november the seventh seventeen eighty three when one man was hanged the first at newgate was on the following december the ninth when ten were hanged End of footnote. It having been argued that this was an improvement, no, sir, said he eagerly, it is not an improvement. They object that the old method drew together a number of spectators. Sir, executions are intended to draw spectators. If they do not draw spectators, they don't answer their purpose. The old method was most satisfactory to all parties, the public was gratified by a procession, the criminal was supported by it. Why is all this to be swept away? I perfectly agree with Dr. Johnson upon this head, and am persuaded that executions now, the solemn procession being discontinued, have not nearly the effect which they formerly had. Footnote. Richardson, in his familiar letters, makes a country gentleman in town describe the procession of five criminals to tyburn and their execution he should have heard he said the exhortation spoken by the bellman from the wall of st sepulchre's churchyard but the noise of the officers and the mob was so great and the silly curiosity of people climbing into the cart to take leave of the criminals made such a confused noise that i could not hear them they are as follow all good people pray heartily to god for these poor sinners who are now going to their deaths for whom this great bell doth toll you that are condemned to die repent with lamentable tears lord have mercy upon you christ have mercy upon you which last words the bellman repeats three times all the way up hoven the crowd was so great as at every twenty or thirty yards to obstruct the passage and wine notwithstanding a late good order against that practice was brought the malefactors who drank greedily of it now after this the three thoughtless young men who at first seemed not enough concerned grew most shamefully daring and wanton they swore laughed and talked obscenely at the place of execution the scene grew still more shocking and the clergyman who attended was more the subject of ridicule than of their serious attention the psalm was sung amidst the curses and quarrelling of hundreds of the most abandoned and profligate of mankind as soon as the poor creatures were half dead 
i was much surprised to see the populace fall to hauling and pulling the carcasses with so much earnestness as to occasion several warm rencounters and broken heads these i was told were the friends of the persons executed or such as for the sake of tumult chose to appear so and some persons sent by private surgeons to obtain bodies for dissection the psalm is mentioned in a note on the line in the dunciad hence hymning tyburn's elegiac lines it is an ancient english custom says pope for the malefactors to sing a psalm at their execution at tyburn End of footnote. magistrates both in london and elsewhere have i am afraid in this had too much regard to their own ease of dr hurd bishop of worcester johnson said to a friend hurd sir is one of a set of men who account for everything systematically for instance it has been a fashion to wear scarlet breeches these men would tell you that according to causes and effects no other wear could at that time have been chosen he however said of him at another time to the same gentleman heard sir is a man whose acquaintance is a valuable acquisition that learned and ingenious prelate it is well known published at one period of his life moral and political dialogues with a woefully whiggish cast Footnote. hume speaks of heard as attacking him with all the illiberal petulance arrogance and scurrility which distinguish the warburtonian school heard writes walpole had acquired a great name by several works of slender merit was a gentle plausible man affecting a singular decorum that endeared him highly to devout old ladies he is best known to the present generation by his impertinent notes on addison's works by reprinting them mr bone did much to spoil what was otherwise an excellent edition of that author End of footnote. afterwards his lordship having thought better came to see his error and republished the work with a more constitutional spirit johnson however was unwilling to allow him full credit for his political conversion i remember when his lordship declined the honour of being archbishop of canterbury johnson said i am glad he did not go to lambeth for after all i fear he is a whig in his heart johnson's attention to precision and clearness in expression was very remarkable it is approved of parentheses and i believe in all his voluminous writings not half a dozen of them will be found he never used the phrases the former and the latter having observed that they often occasioned obscurity he therefore contrived to construct his sentences so as not to have occasion for them and would even rather repeat the same words in order to avoid them 
Footnote. The Reverend T. Twining, one of Dr. Burney's friends, wrote in 1779, You use a form of reference that I abominate, that is, the latter, the former. As long as you have the use of your tongue and your pen, said Dr. Johnson to Dr. Burney, never, sir, be reduced to that shift. End of footnote. Nothing is more common than to mistake surnames when we hear them carelessly uttered for the first time. To prevent this he used not only to pronounce them slowly and distinctly, but to take the trouble of spelling them, a practice which I have often followed and which I wish were general. Such was the heat and irritability of his blood that not only did he pare his nails to the quick, but scraped the joints of his fingers with a penknife till they seemed quite red and raw. The heterogeneous composition of human nature was remarkably exemplified in Johnson. His liberality in giving his money to persons in distress was extraordinary. Yet there lurked about him a propensity to paltry saving. One day I owned to him that I was occasionally troubled with a fit of narrowness. Why, sir, said he, so am I, but I do not tell it. He has now and then borrowed a shilling of me, and when I asked for it again seemed to be rather out of humour. A droll little circumstance once occurred, as if he meant to reprimand my minute exactness as a creditor. He thus addressed me. Boswell, lend me sixpence, not to be repaid. Footnote. Madame D'Arblay. A shilling was now wanted for some purpose or other, and none of them happened to have one. I begged that I might lend one. I do, said the doctor. I will borrow of you. Authors are like privateers. Always fair game for one another. End of footnote. This great man's attention to small things was very remarkable. As an instance of it, he one day said to me, Sir, when you get silver in change for a guinea, look carefully at it. You may find some curious piece of coin. Though a stern, true-born Englishman and fully prejudiced against all other nations, he had discernment enough to see and candour enough to censure the cold reserve too common among Englishmen towards strangers. Sir, said he, two men of any other nation who are shown into a room together at a house where they are both visitors will immediately find some conversation. But two Englishmen will probably go each to a different window and remain in obstinate silence. Sir, we, as yet, do not enough understand the common rights of humanity. Johnson was, at a certain period of his life, a good deal with the Earl of Shelburne, now Marquess of Lansdowne, as he doubtless could not but have a due value for that nobleman's activity of mind and uncommon acquisitions of important knowledge, 
however much he might disapprove of other parts of his lordship's character which were widely different from his own Footnote. what this period was boswell seems to leave intentionally vague johnson knew lord shelburne at least as early as seventeen seventy eight he wrote to Dr. Taylor on July the 22nd, 1782, Shelburne speaks of Burke in private with great malignity. The company commonly gathered at his house would have been displeasing to Johnson. Priestley, who lived with Shelburne seven years, says that a great part of the company he saw there was like the French philosophers unbelievers in christianity and even professed atheists men who had given no proper attention to christianity and did not really know what it was johnson was intimate with lord shelburne's brother End footnote. morris morgan esq author of the very ingenious essay on the character of falstaff footnote, Johnson, being asked his opinion of this essay, answered, Why, sir, we shall have the man come forth again, and as he has proved Falstaff to be no coward, he may prove Iago to be a very good character. Boswell, end of footnote. Being a particular friend of his lordship, had once an opportunity of entertaining Johnson for a day or two at Wickham, when its lord was absent, and by him I have been favoured with two anecdotes. One is not a little to the credit of Johnson's candour. Mr. Morgan and he had a dispute pretty late at night, in which Johnson would not give up, though he had the wrong side, and in short both kept the field. Next morning, when they met in the breakfasting-room, Dr. Johnson accosted Mr. Morgan thus. Sir, I have been thinking on our dispute last night. You were in the right. Footnote. A writer in the European magazine says that Johnson visited Lord Shelburne at Bowood. At dinner he repeated part of his letter to Lord Chesterfield. A gentleman arrived late. Shelburne telling him what he had missed, went on. I dare say the doctor will be kind enough to give it to us again. Indeed, my lord, I will not. I told the circumstance first for my own amusement, but I will not be dragged in as storyteller to a company. In an argument he used some strong expressions of which his opponent took no notice next morning he went up to the gentleman with great good nature and said sir i have found out upon reflection that i was both warm and wrong in my argument with you last night for the first of which i beg your pardon and for the second i thank you for setting me right it is clear that the second of these anecdotes is the same as that told by mr morgan of johnson and himself and that the scene has been wrongly transferred from Wickham to Bowood. The same writer says that it was between Derrick and Boyce, not Derrick and Smart, that Johnson in the story that follows could not settle the precedency. End footnote. 
the other anecdote was as follows johnson for sport perhaps or from the spirit of contradiction eagerly maintained that derrick had merit as a writer mr morgan argued with him directly in vain at length he had recourse to this device pray sir said he do you reckon derrick or smart the best poet johnson at once felt himself roused and answered sir there is no settling the point of precedency between a louse and a flea once when checking my boasting too frequently of myself in company he said to me boswell you often vaunt so much as to provoke ridicule you put me in mind of a man who was standing in the kitchen of an inn with his back to the fire and thus accosted the person next him do you know sir who i am no sir said the other i have not that advantage sir said he i am the great twormley who invented the new floodgate iron Footnote. what the great twormley was so proud of having invented was neither more nor less than a kind of box iron for smoothing linen Boswell. End of footnote. the bishop of killaloe on my repeating the story to him defended twormley by observing that he was entitled to the epithet of great for Virgil, in his group of worthies in the Elysian fields, hic manus ob patriam pugnando vulnera passi, etc., mentions inventas aut qui vitam excoluere perates. Footnote. Hic manus ob patriam pugnando vulnera passi, quique sacerdotes castidum vita manebat, quique pie vates et fibo digna locuti, inventas aut qui vitam excoluere perates. Aeneid, Book Six, Line Six Sixty. Lo, they who in their country's fight sword-wounded bodies bore, lo, priests of holy life and chaste while they in life had part, lo, God loved poets, men who spake things worthy Phoebus's heart, and they who bettered life on earth by new-found mastery. Morris. The great Twormley might have justified himself by the rambler. Every man from the highest to the lowest station ought to warm his heart and animate his endeavours with the hopes of being useful to the world by advancing the art which is his lot to exercise and for that end he must necessarily consider the whole extent of its application and the whole weight of its importance every man ought to endeavour at eminence not by pulling others down but by raising himself and enjoy the pleasure of his own superiority whether imaginary or real without interrupting others in the same felicity all this is what Twomley did he adorned an art he endeavoured at eminence and he inoffensively enjoyed the pleasure of his own superiority he could also have defended himself by the example of aeneas who introducing himself said sum pius aeneas fama super aetera notus i fear that Twomley 
met with the neglect that so commonly befalls inventors in the gentleman's magazine 1783 i find in the list of bankrupts josiah Tormley, the elder of warwick ironmonger he was pleased to say to me one morning when we were left alone in his study boswell i think i am easier with you than with almost anybody he would not allow mr david hume any credit for his political principles though similar to his own saying of him so he was a tory by chance Footnote. sir hume is a tory by chance as being a scotchman but not upon a principle of duty for he has no principle if he is anything he is a hobbist horace walpole's opinion was very different are not atheism and bigotry first cousins was not charles the second an atheist and a bigot and does mr hume pluck a stone from a church but to raise an altar to tyranny hume wrote in seventeen fifty six my views of things are more conformable to weak principles my representations of persons to tory prejudices hume's toryism increased with years he says in his autobiography that all the alterations which he made in the later editions of his history of the stuarts he made invariably to the tory side dr burton gives instances of these hume wrote in seventeen sixty three that he was too much infected with the plaguy prejudices of whiggism when he began the work in seventeen seventy he wrote i either soften or expunge many villainous seditious whig strokes which had crept into it this growing hatred of whiggism was perhaps due to pique john home in his notes of hume's talk in the last weeks of his life says he recurred to a subject not unfrequent with him that is the design to ruin him as an author by the people that were ministers at the first publication of his history and called themselves weeks as regards america hume was with the whigs as johnson had perhaps learnt from their common friend mr strawn he was says dr burton far more tolerant of the sway of individuals over numbers which he looked upon as the means of preserving order and civilization than of the predominance of one territory over another which he looked upon as subjugation quite at the beginning of the struggle he foretold the americans would not be subdued unless they broke in pieces among themselves he was not frightened by the prospect of the loss of our supremacy he wrote to adam smith my notion is that the matter is not so important as is commonly imagined my navigation and general commerce may suffer more than our manufactures johnson's charge against hume that he had no principle is no doubt a gross one yet hume's advice to a sceptical young clergyman who had good hope of preferment 
that he should therefore continue in orders was unprincipled enough. It is, he wrote, putting too great a respect on the vulgar and on their superstitions to pique oneself on sincerity with regard to them. Did ever one make it a point of honour to speak truth to children or madmen? If the thing were worthy being treated gravely, I should tell him that the Pythian oracle, with the approbation of Xenophon, advised every one to worship the gods, nomo poleos. I wish it was still in my power to be a hypocrite in this particular. The common duties of society usually require it, and the ecclesiastical profession only adds a little more to an innocent dissimulation, or rather simulation, without which it is impossible to pass through the world. End of footnote. His acute observation of human life made him remark, Sir, there is nothing by which a man exasperates most people more than by displaying a superior ability or brilliancy in conversation. They seem pleased at the time, but their envy makes them curse him at their hearts. Footnote. Miss Piozzi says that Johnson told that in writing the story of Galileden, the poor scholar who sought to fight his way to fame by his learning and wit, he had his own outset into life in his eye. Galileden describes how he was sometimes admitted to the tables of the viziers where he exerted his wit and diffused his knowledge. But he observed that where, by endeavour or accident, he had remarkably excelled, he was seldom invited a second time. End of footnote. My readers will probably be surprised to hear that the great Dr. Johnson could amuse himself with so slight and playful a species of composition as a charade. I have recovered one which he made on Dr. Barnard, now Lord Bishop of Killaloe, who has been pleased for many years to treat me with so much intimacy and social ease that I may presume to call him not only my right reverend but my very dear friend. I therefore with peculiar pleasure give to the world a just and elegant compliment thus paid to his lordship by Johnson. Sherard. My first shuts out thieves from your house or your room. My second expresses a Syrian perfume. My whole is a man in whose converse is shared the strength of a bar and the sweetness of nard. Johnson asked Richard Owen Cambridge, Esquire, if he had read the Spanish translation of Sallust, said to be written by a prince of Spain with the assistance of his tutor, who is professedly the author of a treatise, annexed on the Phoenician language. Mr. Cambridge commended the work, particularly as he thought the translator understood his author better than is commonly the case with translators but said he was disappointed in the purpose for which he had borrowed the book, to see whether a Spaniard could be better furnished with inscriptions from monuments, coins, or other antiquities, which he might more probably find on a coast so immediately opposite to Carthage than the antiquaries of any other countries. Johnson. 
I am very sorry you was not gratified in your expectations. Footnote. Though you was is very common in the authors of the last century when one person was addressed, I doubt greatly whether Johnson ever so expressed himself. End footnote. Cambridge. The language would have been of little use, as there is no history existing in that tongue, to balance the partial accounts which the Roman writers have left us. Johnson. No, sir, they have not been partial. They have told their own story without shame, or regard to equitable treatment of their injured enemy. They had no compunction, no feeling for the Carthaginians. Why, sir, they would never have borne Virgil's description of Aeneas's treatment of Dido, if she had not been a Carthaginian. I gratefully acknowledge this and other communications from Mr. Cambridge, whom, if a beautiful villa on the banks of the Thames a few miles distant from London, a numerous and excellent library, which he accurately knows and reads, a choice collection of pictures, which he understands and relishes, an easy fortune, an amiable family, an extensive circle of friends and acquaintance, distinguished by rank, fashion and genius, a literary fame, various, elegant and still increasing, colloquial talents rarely to be found, and with all these means of happiness, enjoying, when well advanced in years, health and vigour of body, serenity and animation of mind, do not entitle to be addressed fortunate cynics, I know not to whom in any age that expression could with propriety have been used. Footnote. Horace Walpole says, Boswell, like Cambridge, has a rage of knowing anybody that ever was talked of. Miss Burney records an old trick of Mr. Cambridge to his son George when listening to a dull story in saying to the relator, Tell the rest of that to George. End of footnote. Long may he live to hear and to feel it. End of section 22.